All right. Uh, so you may or may not have heard this parable before, the 99 sheep, uh, well, actually, it's 100 sheep, and the one that goes astray. I don't know if you guys are aware of this, but this parable appears twice in the Gospels, once here in Matthew 18 and another time in Luke 15. And those were probably separate occasions that Jesus brought those parables up. And he was probably teaching on slightly different things. In Luke 15, it's pretty clear that he was speaking about unsaved people and just how important uh, each and every single soul is to the God, Father in heaven. But here in Matthew 18, I think there's a slightly different perspective on it. And so my hope is that in the next uh, however so many minutes, we'll be able to understand this clearly because I think it's an important message uh, to the church today. But in order to do so, uh, we're going to spend not, hopefully not too much time, but a few minutes looking at the context of this, which is Matthew 18. And this is how I'll start it. Uh, uh, I'm just going to pick someone in random, and he's sitting up here in the front, and he's one of my friends, and he loves talking to me about USC football. And, uh, you know, I love it too. Uh, I'm a, I, th- that's what makes sports sweet, right? We, we have buy-in, and we have friends, and we have conversations, but he's a huge USC guy, and like all Trojans, uh, up to about the fourth week of the season this year, they're in, in crazy depression, and then they change their quarterback, and it's like a totally different team, um, but anyways, uh, let's just imagine for a second, all right, Victor, uh, he, he has discovered something that will change the world, I don't know, I, I was trying to think of a good example, I, I don't know, holographic phone, uh, uh, you know, flying car, self-driving whatever, uh, you know, you can t- teleport from, you know, A to B, you could like, you don't have to get on a plane to travel somewhere, it's something that's going to change the world. And it sounds so incredible that all of our reaction is the same, we're very pessimistic, we're like, okay, <laughs> you go for it, Victor, why don't you do that? And even Kay is, is, has her doubts, and she's not very supportive, and she's working doubly hard because she feels like my husband's going to lose a lot of money on this one. And a few years down the line, all of a sudden, we start to see the fruits of his labor. The factories are getting built, the team is getting larger. Money's starting to come in. Investors are starting to pour money in. And before you know it, there's an actual, real, working product that goes for sale. And it does what's advertised. Now, the consequences of that is that for some of us, there may be the question of, well, I wonder if I could also be a part of this venture. Can I be a part of management? Can I get hired? Can I be a part of sales? I have a lot of whatever experience. I want to also join Victor in this endeavor. The reason why I spend a few minutes talking about this is because I want you to imagine what's happening with the disciples of Jesus in this way. The disciples were going through life as was everybody in that region when a man suddenly came and started saying stuff that was incredible. His claims were out of this world. He was saying things that was hard to accept at face value because he was claiming to finally be the one that they had been waiting for. He had been cl- he's claiming to be the Messiah, claiming to be the Son of God, claiming that basically what Israel has been waiting for had come, the kingdom of God was at hand. 
And like you and I, it would have been very difficult to accept everything he's saying at face value. But you have a group of 12 who for whatever reason believe and they accept. Even they had their doubts at the beginning, but they drop everything they're doing in order to follow this man. And they live with him. Everything he says, everything he teaches, everything, uh, it's life together for a couple of years. And now at the end, and towards the culmination of all of this, these 12 men are starting to believe that maybe what he was saying is true. They're seeing the fruits of his labor. They're seeing the people now who are coming, who are following, who are listening to every word. They've seen him perform incredible, incredible miracles. So now they're thinking, you know what? For sure, he's more than just a man. He's more than just you and me. He is someone that's worth following, and maybe what he's saying is true. So now they're beginning to think, what will my place be in his kingdom? What will my role be in this kingdom? And so you get to Matthew 18, and you know, I've, I've kind of heard some people talk about this in a way where, like, how could the disciples be so ridiculous? But think about what just has been happening in their lives for a couple of years, right? Think about it. You and I would probably be similar. And that question in verse 1 that they posed to Jesus, uh, yeah, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? I think it would be oversimplification if we just said they're being immature, they're being childish, all they care about is who's being great. No, it's this idea that finally they bought in to what Jesus has been saying all this time, and now they want to understand, well, what's going to be the structure? Who's going to be in charge? Obviously, Jesus, you're the man. You're going to sit on the throne. You're going to be the Messiah, but who's going to do what? Right? Who's going to be your right-hand guy? Who's going to be the one that executes your orders? Every kingdom has to have a guy who does the will, right? Who's going to be him? Out of us 12, obviously, we've been the ones who've been following you around this whole time. So which one do you pick, Jesus? Very natural question, I think. In response, though, Jesus, look at verse 2. He does something that was a little bit unexpected. He calls a child to them, has the child uh, stand in their midst, and he says to them this, Truly I say to you, this is verse 3, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Right? Listen to that. Unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, right, my picture of children uh, used to be that they were sweet, they're innocent, they're like cotton balls or cotton candy or whatever you want to, you know, this you know, cloud of, you know, cuteness. Uh, and uh, baby powder, and then you have a child, and you realize children are like little devils, right? They're, they're prideful, they're greedy, they're brats, they're selfish. If they don't get what they want, what do they do? They cry, and they throw a temper tantrum. Children think the whole world revolves around them. So what is Jesus exactly saying here when he says, we have to become like children? in order to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Well, in verse 4, he says, one specific characteristic is what he had in mind here, and this is what he's talking about, unless you become what? Like children. Humble. See, this is why I like Victor. He, He responds. Love it. 
So he's specifically talking about humility. Now think about this. One of the biggest differences between adults and children is the simple reality for adults is that we like to use our skills, our assets, our toolbox, if you want to say, to try and go through life. If a problem arises, we go to our toolbox and we think, well, what can help me through this problem? What can help me through this situation? And a lot of times we have experience that we can draw upon. A lot of times we have sort of relational know-how that we've developed over the years. Or sometimes it's money. Sometimes it's uh, ability or power. But whatever reason, uh, we, we tend as adults to rely upon ourselves, whereas children are different. Children depend upon adults. So if you have a child and they're like, you know what, I'm hungry, I'm starving. Children don't think, well, what can I do to go get some food? I know, I'll go and go hunting. Or I'm going to go get a job so I can make such amount of money so that every month I'll have a paycheck so that I could buy my own food. No, children go to their parents and they say, I'm hungry. Feed me. And so this, this, this is what Jesus is talking about when he references the humility of children. He's not talking about talking a certain way or acting a certain way, right? Acting humble or anything like that. He's talking about a state of mind where in your existence you depend upon someone. You are helpless, you are powerless to fix anything. And so you turn to someone else. And so it's clear, Jesus is saying, yeah, you want to enter into the kingdom of heaven. It's not about what you can solve or what, what you can do. You have to be able to trust in your Lord. You have to be able to trust in your Savior. But here's where it gets very interesting for us, at least today. Verses 5 and 6, I think, clearly shows to us that he uses this picture of a child to describe his church and kingdom community because he says, whoever receives one such child in my name, verse 5, receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. So he uses this illustration and this picture of children. He goes on to say something and to teach something very important. He says, look, just like these children, whoever helps or blesses them, man, amen to that. This is what our community uh, life is going to be about for the kingdom that, that I'm leading here. But if anyone is going to hurt my little ones, right? And it could, be, it could be children, but it could also be disciples. It could be people who are struggling in the church. It could be people who maybe lost their way a little bit. Or maybe even people who the kingdoms of the world would consider lowly. He says, if you're going to cause one of them to stumble, man, it's better for you to have <laughs> this huge stone tied to your neck and to be thrown into the depth of the sea. The reason why this is important is because when you get to the, the parable, verse 10, look at how he starts. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. So he's referring back to the little ones that he talked about earlier. And he says, don't despise even a single one. That, that word despise, talking about scorning someone, to look down with disdain upon someone. He says, you cannot do that to even one single little one of mine. And what is the biggest reason that we would look, with someone, uh, look at someone with disdain or with scorn? Pride. 
thinking that we're better than them, thinking that we deserve more than them, thinking that for some reason we are more worthy of God's love, maybe the upbringing we have, maybe the life that we have, maybe what we're doing at church, maybe what we're involved in, for some reason we are more worthy and I will look down upon this other person with disdain or with scorn because I am greater. Do you see the context? The question that the disciples were asking was wrong for Jesus' kingdom. So you see, the, the kingdoms of the world are usually built with a certain system in mind. There is a struggle for power, a struggle for wealth, for getting ahead, for climbing up to the top. It rewards people who aspire to be great, who want to be leaders, who want to command others, who have a gift or knack or talent for those kinds of things, who are able to gather others and, and give them a vision and lead them to do things that maybe they would not do on their own. These are the kingdoms of the world. But Jesus has wanted to explain and to lead his disciples in understanding something very important. The kingdom of heaven is quite different. It's not about your rank. It's not about your greatness. It's about each and every single person. Whether they are considered low or not. Every little one being engaged, being served, being loved, not being scorned, not being looked down upon. It's a community of greatness by everyone loving and serving each other. So the question that the disciples were asking was all wrong. Who's going to be the greatest? Who's second? Who's going to be your right-hand guy? Who's going to be the one that sits next to you on, on your throne? It's almost as if Jesus is saying, stop it. And he says something very interesting in the second half of verse 10. And it's something that sometimes we've, in the history of the church, we've fixated upon it a little bit. Because he speaks of something that's, you know, really fascinating to us. And it's this idea that maybe we have angels who are guarding us. And so you may have heard the term guardian angels. But I don't think this is what Jesus is saying, nor is it what he's teaching. But there is something that's very powerful here. He says, look, there are angels, right? There are angels that the little ones have. And the only thing he says about these angels is that they have what? Direct and open contact to who? The Father. So really what Jesus is saying is, look, you can't despise even a single little one. God knows everything. He knows how they're being treated. He knows if they're being cared for. He knows if they're being served. He knows if they're being loved, even the little ones. Their angels have direct access to the Father himself. Now, I remember uh, when we we enrolled Sophia into, um, as soon as she was able to uh, use the toilet by herself, and this was hit or miss, all right, guys? It's never 100% from the beginning. Uh, we enrolled her in a daycare, childcare, whatever you want to call it. That place happened to call themselves a Montessori school. I don't know what that is. But we enrolled her in it because it was cheaper than the other options, and it seemed kind of organized and clean, and we liked it. So we enrolled her in there, and, you know, I, I really didn't care much about anything. I was just happy that we could put her in something, and she was growing there and learning some things, until one day she came home with some scratches on her face. And I remember Susan being livid, right? Like, 
man, there's someone hurt my little girl. And I remember trying to get her to calm down. There's probably nothing. Well, I'll go check it out uh, the next day. And so I found out the next day that they have a little thing set up at this place where it's like a one-way mirror. So parents could stand behind this uh, piece of glass, and we could see the children, but the children would not be able to see us. And so it was originally, I guess, for them, a way to kind of put parents at ease who are dropping off their little ones for the first time. But you know, I, for the first time, I decided I wanted to stay and take a look at what was going on. And I was standing there, and it dawned on me a couple things. My daughter is not an innocent child. Uh, you know, she's, she's got some issues that I need to talk to her about. Uh, 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 but w one thing that was really clear was that children will act one way when they think adults are watching them. And then when they think no one's watching them, they act a different way. It was, it was amazing that at such a young age, they could be so adult-like. Because <laughs> right? as soon as uh, like the teachers or whatever left the room, it was like chaos. And as soon as the teachers came back, it was like, oh. I'm sharing. You know, I, I'm almost afraid to wonder if this is God's picture of the church. Right? When we think he's not watching, when we think no one will find out, when we think no one can read our minds or our thoughts, when we think our trusted ones are the ones we're talking to and they won't betray us by saying what we're saying right now to others, Maybe we tend to treat God's children, his disciples, his little ones with disdain, with scorn. And there's this very powerful reminder from Jesus to his disciples and to his church, hey, the Father knows. It's not that he doesn't know, he knows. It's almost like a wake up. We can't do that. We can't do that if we're going to be calling ourselves the church. We can't do this if we're going to call ourselves uh, members, people, children of the kingdom of heaven. And to illustrate further, he gets into this very important, short little parable. Talks about a man who has a hundred sheep. Now we don't have sheep. We don't raise sheep, so it's a little foreign to us. But you know, Jesus uh, poses a question. That's what's kind of interesting in verses 12 and 13. He says, look, you got a guy who has 100 sheep. If one of them goes astray, wouldn't he go out, leave the 99 in the mountains, and look for that one lost sheep? Wouldn't he do that? And he, he, he tells this, and he asks this in a way that what the expected answer is, of course, who wouldn't? Who would sit there and think, well, I, you know, 199 safe, one lost. Hey, 99% is pretty good in my book. I'll just call that an operating loss. Forget it. I need to focus on the 99 who are here. The way Jesus tells it is that would be ridiculous. That would be astonishing. That would be the unexpected response. The expected and normal response is that he would leave the 99 to look for the one. 
Now, I don't know if you've ever experienced something similar to this, but I remember one day when I was in Target and Sophia was pretty young. I want to say like twos. This happened to, the, happened to me in the Target in East Pasadena. It's so vivid. The feelings, the memories, it's all very alive for me today. But I remember when I turned around once in that Target and she was not next to me. And she should have been. And you know, you kind of get that momentary, oh, where is she? Sophia, Sophia, Sophia O, Sophia Faith O, you better come out right now. No response. So you start looking around in the aisles next to you, nothing. My immediate response was to grab every single person next to me and say, hey, I've lost my daughter. She's this little Asian girl, like two and a half years old. Her name is Sophia, can you help me find her? I had several people running up and down the aisles of Target, yelling, Sophia, Sophia. We, I, I, I don't remember how long this was. It felt like an hour of searching. I, I wanted to run to the front of Target and like shut the place down. That's how I felt. And this uh, elderly grandmother um, found her. She was hiding in one of those clothes things. After that, I put her in the cart. That's how we did Target after that for a while. Now, I only have one. But maybe for some of you who have three kids, or if you're really ambitious and you have five or six kids, like, is it any different because you have more kids that if you lose that one, that it would feel different? Like, ah, one missing, four safe. It's all right. 80%, B, I'm a B student, that's okay. My mom comes from a family of 11 children. My grandmother had nine sons and two daughters. I know, it's insane. I don't know how many years she was pregnant, like almost like 18 years or something, right? Does she reach a point where it's like, ah, (laughs) I lost one? That's okay. I mean, even if you had 100 children, I know it's not physically something we can do. But even if you had 100 children, would it be okay to lose one? Right? And Jesus' explanation of the heart of the Father is so vivid. And it's so clear. And he's not trying to say that the one that's missing was the favorite sheep So he doesn't care about the 99, or he cares less about the 99. And it's confusing, because when you look at verse 13, specifically, Jesus explains that what? The joy that the man felt when he found out one lost one was what? Greater. It was greater, a greater joy, uh, this rejoicing over it more than the, uh, if the other 99. And so, look, don't, don't confuse what Jesus is saying here. There's a different joy that's involved when you lose one and then you find him. There's a joy that is great when your whole family is safe. It's not that you love one necessarily more than the other, but when they're all together again. If you have a hundred sheep and one goes missing, it's not about who's greater, who's lesser, who's stronger, who's the better sheep, who gives more fleece, who looks more healthy, which one is going to provide more lamb chops. It's about getting that hundred back together again. And that incredible joy that 
is going to be experienced by that man when he gets them all back in the fold. That's the illustration that Jesus gives to tell his disciples, stop it. We're not a church of like, you know, let's rank ourselves. Who's the best prayer? Let's rank ourselves. Who's the greatest servant? Let's rank ourselves. Who's the best Bible reader? Let's rank ourselves. Who's the best church in Orange County? Let's rank ourselves. Who's got the best children's ministry? Let's rank ourselves. Who's the best preacher? Let's rank the preachers. Just every single little one to him. Right? Is the reason why he came to die on the cross in order to save us. Verse 14 shows that this is the heart, the heart, the will, the desire of the Father that not a single one would be lost. Not a single one. And I think it's a wake-up call for us today. Because if you're like me, it's easy for us to be prideful. And to maybe think, well, we're doing okay in terms of we've got a certain amount of things we're going on and people we've gathered and things we're involved with. And we forget about the value of each and every single soul that God is trying to bring back into his fold. wake-up call. Every single soul. I know at Crossway, we ask you guys to do things a lot of times. We say, give for this. We're starting to run out of things to call ministries and drives. Project hope, be generous, give a gift. I don't know. But isn't this what the church is supposed to be doing? It's the organization that is not supposed to think about how we can be greater, but how we could reach one more soul. Of how one more little one would be saved. And if through the efforts of this church, if there would be one sheep that comes back to the fold, there is great rejoicing, amen? Great rejoicing. Pastor Paul mentioned it, but you know, Pastor Steve was actually worried about presenting the Ebenezer Theological Seminary Library Drive right now because he felt like, you know, we've been asking a lot. You guys gave $13,000 worth of presents to all of Crest families. You guys gave a lot of money to Home on the Green Pastures. Can we go ahead and launch right away another drive for a library in a country that we're not familiar with, a people we're not familiar with, a situation that seems so far away at Christmas time, at the end of the year, and we both had to be reminded that, yes, it's always a great time to do this. They're a seminary made up of people who often will leave everything in the past. Their families, their relationships, their friendships, in order to say, I'm going to commit to learning more about God and to maybe one day be used by him to plant the church in India. 
now this seminary is facing a situation where they need to have a library with a certain amount of books so that they could be accredited, so that they could go out and say, we are an accredited seminary. And all they said they need to start this library is $5,000. And if through those efforts, one little one could come to know Christ, right? Hasn't Jesus made it clear that this is what his kingdom is about? It's not about us climbing a certain ladder and getting a more privileged space or spot in heaven. It's not about us in terms of what we can get more, of how we can experience more blessing, how we could even do more. It's about every single little one and how each soul would be considered precious. That's the will of the Father. My prayer is for us here at Crossway that this is something we would desire as well, a little bit more each year. That as we come to the end of 2016 and we about to embark on 2017, that this would be something we pride ourselves in. Maybe there could be a, such a thing as healthy pride. This is what we want our church to be about. One more soul. One more little one. Maybe our prayer request could be, how can we take more and more focus away from ourselves? How can we sort of reinvent the paradigms that we're so used to? About climbing, about getting bigger, about more blessing, about being more greater, about having more and doing more, more and more, bigger, bigger, greater, greater for ourselves versus that one more soul. Whenever I think about our church, I, I feel like we have a place in this world. And maybe our place is going to be to be this kind of church. Amen? Let's pray. Dearly Father, we thank you for your reminders to the disciples, your disciples, and to us, the church today, Lord the will of the Father, the heart of the Father, of how each and every single little one is so important to you. That's us. We are also each and every single little one, Lord. You didn't consider the glory of heaven something to be grasped. Instead, you humbled yourself to die on the cross for our sins. We are forever grateful for that. We ask that you would help us to also have the same heart as the Father, that we would also love and serve and really go out and figure out how to live for your gospel, Lord. Pray that this would be something that's true and important for us as individuals, but also for our church here at Crossway. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.